I've been involved in it for over 30 years. I've never been idle. I've been through a number of recessions, never been short of work. And it's given me a huge opportunity to work all around the world and work with some really interesting people. I'm Sean Cheatham, Chief Commercial Officer at Hayes Technology, and welcome to How Did You Get That Job? a podcast which explores the secrets behind career success in the tech industry. In this episode, we chat with Sean Jevons, who is the Chief Digital Officer at Allied Irish Bank, otherwise known as AIB. I'll be asking you more about the role of Chief Digital Officer and what skills are needed to succeed. With an illustrious career which has taken him around the world developing digital products, I'll be asking him for some tips to consider And finally, we'll look to the future and see how tech could shape the financial industry. So, Sean, you're the chief digital officer at AIB. Tell our listeners a little more about your role. So my role in AIB really as chief digital officer, it's really to promote digital kind of end to end to the bank and to our customers. So it's really to embed digital across what we do so that all the customer interactions from what they do at the front office to write through our organization that in a way we're removing paper, we're removing process, we're removing drop-offs, and we're using as much technology to automate as much of that as possible and to make it as seamless for customers and as efficient as possible. So that's really the nuts and bolts of my role. For a lot of our customers, it will be the bits and the elements that they see, our mobile banking app or our business online banking Internal customers, it might be the systems that are used in the branch or when they talk to the guys in the call center. It's all those aspects and it's quite a broad remit. And it's really about trying to define how we can harness technology, what's happening with technology to really drive the agenda and meet the customer's needs. Sure. How did you get that job? Um, So probably how did I get this job? Just I like how technology can be used. My background is originally a techie. So I started off as a programmer analyst back in the 80s, working in the statistics office for the government. I decided at the age of 20, maybe I'm going to leave the civil service, as we call it here, the public service. And I went to work for what would be called now fintech. They realized very quickly, if we want to be successful, we have to build something for the global market. But actually, probably the big change for me was I actually left technology. I got a different role within the company. I applied for a role as a business analyst. I got that and I probably never looked back there because that's probably when I started to get much more involved in what actually is the problem that we're trying to solve? What's the customer need? Now, what was really, really helpful for me was that I understood the technology. It's funny in a way, would you've ever been a techie, your brain still kind of functions that way. And when someone tosses a requirement or talks about a need at you, you can still kind of compute. You can still kind of figure out, well, that's relatively straightforward or technically that's really, really complicated. Over the next 30 years now at the stage, I've spent most of my career hopping back either between the business and the IT side, being reasonably kind of comfortable on both. If you think about a chief digital officer role, some people see it as a very technology role. It's not a technology role at all, actually. It's actually how do you apply what is actually fairly mainstream technology to solve the real needs of customers to kind of drive self-service. That's really what it is, that they can look after themselves. If you can make it convenient... And if you can make it easy to use, customers will adopt it and they'll thank you for it and they'll use it. Certainly, it sounds like if you didn't make the move to the business side of it, you feel like you'd be in the role that you are today? I think, Sean, I probably wouldn't. It was young enough in my career when it was probably low risk. It was also within the same organization where I kind of knew I was well respected. I'd got credibility. I was well trusted. I was given a lot of very senior projects to work on. People knew I had very strong technical capability. 
moving into the business side, if that hadn't worked for me, the chance to go back into the technology world would have been a five-minute conversation. I think that probably was a critical time. I remember agonizing over the decision, but fundamentally, I think there was a reason why I moved to the business. It's, It's my natural home. It's actually what I enjoy doing, if I was to be really honest. What skills have you honed along the way that you would recommend to people listening right now would need to have a successful career? There's a phrase that we use in Agile called T-shaped. It's a phrase that's thrown around a lot. I would say that's probably been the most important aspect that I would say for people. It's your ability to be able to do a number of things, to be able to understand the customer requirement, understand customer need, the ability to understand the commercials, what will work commercially, what won't work commercially, To be able to get a grasp of the technology in terms of, look, that's so technically complex, we'd be mad to go and ever build it. Understanding the customer, how do you test, understand, get feedback, shape your requirements? I think they're the key skills that I've learned over the years. Probably the other one that I learned, actually, I remember, I think, a very hard lesson as well, too, was around, I'd spent a lot of time doing online banking over a number of years and remember coming in and, and, you know, and having to write strategy on it. And one of the bits that actually was quite a revealing for me was that actually you have to be very open to being wrong. The way digital and customer interactions have changed and the complexity of all the layers, I think there are no experts in a lot of cases. I think being able to orchestrate people rather than or coordinate people or collaborate or challenge people, that's more the skill nowadays for a lot of managers, whether you're a chief digital officer or whatever, you're a general manager. A lot of it nowadays is being able to kind of leverage the talents. So it's it's kind of getting people to collaborate, getting people to understand all the inputs and try and shape them and see which ones might be more relevant, more important, and the ones that you want to emphasize or play up or play down. So I think it's that T-shaping is actually the skill. So if I was to encourage people to do anything, I would say broaden your skill set. Yeah. It's interesting because probably the number one feedback we get from our clients in looking for people and skill sets and so forth. It's their ability to collaborate. Because I do feel like from an educational system, they do teach people how to do the job. But the one thing they don't give them is the ability to actually collaborate and really communicate well. So it's an interesting experience for sure. Yeah, true. It is. And and I find nowadays, if you look through our programs and our projects, there's really nobody who can deliver anything on their own anymore, anything meaningful on their own. So collaboration is now the most critical element to deliver on that, you know? Listeners, if you're interested in pursuing a tech career in leadership within the finance space, I can recommend visiting our blog at hayestechnology.com forward slash leadership hyphen insights, where it talks about key terms, skills, and KPIs to work to. Now, this is the part of the podcast where we look more at you. When researching your background, we discovered you traveled the world to create tech tools and products for emerging markets. I would expect you've had a lot of challenges, language, culture. I mean, what did it teach you? When I moved into the business space, I ended up being out with a lot of our customers in some really interesting parts of the world. Could be Saudi Arabia, it could be Kuwait, could be Iran, you could be in Pakistan, you could be in India, you could be in South Africa, in Kenya, could be in Colombia. And that could be all within the same month. No, not quite, (laughs) but not, not. Not quite within the same month, but I found some really valuable lessons. When you start dealing with different customers and different cultures, doing requirements through a foreign language, simultaneous translation, what you find after a, after a few days is that actually people understand English. They might really speak it. They kind of understand enough. 
they then suddenly get the pace you speak at, you slow down a little bit more. You get good at reading body language. You get very, very good at reading things like, you know, when someone says, no, it's okay. And you just know that it's not clear, but they're too polite to ask the question. You're kind of almost trying to figure out how do you go back and explain it again? Simultaneous translation can be quite funny because like you'll say something and the guys will go off into a big, huge discussion. And then at the end, the translator will come back and say, no, no, it's clear, no questions. And you kind of go, I don't believe you. That was a huge discussion. And I could see this like, really, really massive discussion going on. So I don't believe when you're telling me, no, that's fine. There's nothing. I actually don't believe that at all. So you get quite good at reading the signals and, and, and kind of, it probably did a lot for me in terms of things like, even when you're putting together a PowerPoint deck, you know, you use graphics, you use visuals, you keep the language to an absolute minimum better you get at listening, that really works. And how did that experience influence how you develop product today? What we were trying to do was build products that we could sell all over the world, but very cognizant of the fact that there's always local differences. People always have something that they want to do. So what it kind of taught us was, number one, that you try and design as best you can for that flexibility. What you also do is you probably realize the things that people really care about, their brand, their logo, their colors, Give them the ability to flex that stuff because that actually really works. So it's where you bind or build the interfaces into your system. Focus on the core logic. Try to make that as standard as possible. Provide some parameters around it. But you do design for internationalization. You design for flexibility. You design even for things like scalability. You design for the fact that you'll go into one country. It's a small country. You know, for them, 100,000 customers could be a big customer base. Remember, we were going into India and they were saying, well, the number of branches that one of the banks had was bigger than we had configured for the possible number of branches that you could have in the system at the point in time. You had an incredible background in diversity, and this has been a big topic in all our podcast episodes today. You must have worked with people who've come from what we would call non-traditional tech backgrounds. What's been your experience working with those types of people in the tech space? Particularly with product and product management and product design, that's where I've seen much more diversity of people in terms of their roles and their skills. And again, I think it probably comes back to this T-shaping thing that I've talked about. Product management and software product management and that, it actually requires kind of a combination of skill sets. I think Stephen Haynes talks about product management. He talks about like kind of seven core skills. And they're everything from kind of project delivery to design to marketing to commercial skills. As well as working banking for a large chunk of my career, I worked in sports gambling as well too for a period of time, which was uh, quite an interesting place to work. We unearthed a couple of really, really good, really bright individuals who actually really lacked confidence, if I was very honest. You know, really lacked confidence in terms of, I couldn't talk to the technology guys. I don't really know. I, I couldn't stand up and, and, and describe the problem. And we got a couple of these guys and actually just through coaching and training, they turned into be some of the best product owners that I've ever come across. And it was because they understood the business. They understood the customer. They just focused on the needs. They didn't get drawn into the technology debate of how we build it, what models we use, how we automate it, you know, the CICD pipeline. They didn't care about that at all. But what they were really, really good at was really good at prioritizing. They were really, really good at understanding the needs. They were really, really good at understanding the criticality. When something went wrong, they were really, really good at figuring out, well, hold on a minute. The reason that event might have went wrong is because, and they became almost a proxy between the technology team and the broader business. We've unearthed people that were 
probably weren't like either they weren't the best developer or they weren't the best project manager or they weren't the best accountant or something like that. But actually what they were good at was they were good at getting people working together. They were good at restating a clear problem statement. They were good at making decisions. They weren't afraid to make a decision. Probably that's what I've seen. And that's when people come in and play those roles. It's been really, really helpful and really, really useful. And I've seen that across diversity of people with different, you know, experience, educational background, cultures, you know, and when it works, it's fantastic. When we talked before the podcast, you mentioned that a former manager said to you, you learn nothing from behind the desk. And I love that. Yeah. But yeah. we went through a pandemic. Now everybody is working behind the desk or a screen. <laughs> How do you deal with those challenges, you know, working remotely now? That old boss of mine, we used to call him the fire starter because uh, <laughs> invariably what happened was wherever he was in the world, we used to say he'd go in and he'd promise stuff. And invariably that's where we'd be the following week trying to make it happen. He was very true in what he said in that if you don't understand the problem you're trying to solve, that's when you lose touch. COVID has been a drag in that I, I find it's harder to work together. I've been looking at some research on it and Working remotely is fine for task-oriented things. It works well for that. And that, that is the reality of it. And it, often it means we can probably have bigger groups of people on than we might be able to have otherwise. But I just find the creativity aspect, the collaboration and discussion aspect is hampered a little bit. I'm not naive enough to think we'll be back to, you know, five days in the office, you know, anytime soon. We'll probably get clearer on our requirements and say, actually, that's the priorities, lads. Go do what you need to do. And I think we've got much better tools in terms of customer feedback nowadays than we probably ever had. Tagging, tracking, feedback and apps. I think even customers are probably prepared to give a lot more feedback than they ever did as well too. So one instance recently, got an in-app that we put out with it to encourage people to use it. At one stage, we had to turn it off for a while because it was actually generating so much interest from customers. So there's so much you can do nowadays to actually get that customer feedback as well too. So that I think in the hybrid world, we can make it work. But there is still huge value where you can get out into the street or or even the same, even just understanding, reading feedback. You know, sometimes if you're commuting home, I'll read the, you know, kind of things like the App Store, or the Play Store reviews, just looking for what are customers saying. And I also read for the competition as well, too. <laughs> so because you can find some really, really interesting nuggets there, you know, and I, I might be on the road the same way we would have been in the old days. I think that's something you have to be interested in is what do your customers think? And one of the topics that's come up constantly on these podcasts and draws a lot of interesting comments is really around mentorship. Have you been mentored? I mean, do you have someone yep. that helped you through your career? I've never had a formal mentor. There's probably, there's two guys in particular, one who would have been an old boss of mine. He probably formally, he never mentored me if I was to be very honest, but he never sat down and say, you know, I'm going to be your mentor. That wasn't it. But just in terms of the way he managed me, he would give you responsibility for stuff. And stand back, but encourage you to shout if you've got a need. And, you know, my first few engagements out with customers, he made sure and sent me with somebody quite senior. And then in the background, when I got back, he was asking the guys, did he do okay? Would you be comfortable sending him out again? And then he sent me somewhere on my own. He did a really, really good job building my confidence. But he was the one that probably really embedded in me that customer focus. You know, if you're not solving a problem, what are you doing? His background was sales. And he said, whether it's your product, whether it's your company, whether it's yourself, you're always selling. Everything you do is giving people an impression of you. You never know that next time I meet Sean Cheatham, he might have a role for me that might be really, really interesting. I then probably, as I mentioned through the youth work, I was involved. One of the guys that I worked with was an old guy. He'd been a priest for years, but he's a, he was a funny guy in that he'd studied drama back in the 60s with Cliff Richard. He was a guy that 
again, I would have taken huge knowledge from. I've never seen somebody who understood the art of communications as well. And again, looking back, the art of negotiation, the art of decision-making and getting your way. If you look at effective decision-making in meetings. So all you need to do is keep your idea off the table for the first 90% of the meeting and tire people out and you'll get your decision in the last 10%. Looking back on the way he worked, you know, I suddenly realized how brilliant he was at some of these things. But he had an old phrase and he used to say that it sounds a bit rude, but it wasn't. It was like the only thing that gets better with age is your technique. And I think he's really true. You kind of go, I had this before. It didn't smell right, but it didn't say anything. And it turned out to be a disaster. You know, whereas the next time you come to it, when it starts to smell wrong, you kind of go, no, that's not going to happen again. And you do genuinely change how you adopt your approach on it. So I'm doing a program at the moment where I've been involved in mentoring others. And I find it very beneficial for me as well, too. Sometimes it's a way when you're talking to someone about a problem that they have, it helps you reinforce the knowledge that you've built up over years, stuff you've almost forgotten about. And at the end, they feel better because you've potentially helped them out. You feel better. And in some ways, you've even remembered something. Jeez, I didn't actually realize I had that. That old guy, that old priest I used to work with, he used to always say that training courses like going somewhere and having somebody unpack your suitcase for you. Oh, I'd forgotten I brought that. You know, in some ways, that's what good training courses do. They reinforce the knowledge. It's in there. You just sharpen some of your skills or brings an emphasis back. And probably, you know, I would say that even mentoring people I found for me has been like that. It's reminded me of, you know, how you handle a difficult stakeholder or, you know, I might be good at, you know, figuring out the technical solution, but I'm not good at beating up the Balchi stakeholders. But actually the way I saw it the last time was I didn't try and become Balchi overnight because I'm not a Balchi guy. I just found one of the other stakeholders who is Balchi to do that for me because they like that kind of stuff. Mentorship is hugely valuable, if I was to be really honest. And I found some of the things that people were struggling with were the kind of things that, you know, in a room, in a face-to-face meeting that, you know, that you would have almost would have read like, the more junior person or a new project manager trying to run a project you kind of know that going out of the room afterwards on the way to the coffee point or, you know, for a water, you would have maybe taken them aside and, and said very quickly to them, you know, I think you did a good job there, actually. Don't mind him. He's always a difficult guy to deal with. Or she asks what seem quite um, difficult questions, but they're not out of a kind of a point. And there's no malice in it. It's just to try and understand. Don't feel kind of threatened by it at all. Whereas in a team's called, it's difficult to do that. I think being a mentor or supporting people is probably more critical over the next while. And even... I am in people after a kind of a meeting, even just to support them, I think is probably more important. There's probably some lessons for us there. Sean, let's look to the future. I mean, how do you think your role as the chief digital officer at AIB is going to evolve and adapt in the next few years? I think my role is going to go, if I was to be honest. So, and, and, and I don't mean that negative way, right? There's very few banks with a chief analog officer which kind of tells you like there's probably a time period by which you're going to need a chief digital officer. I see a lot of banks are moving into more into transformation roles. I was talking to someone the other day and they were saying, how do you feel about technology and banking and the fintech aspect? And I was kind of going, you do realize like AIB, small Irish bank, we launched our first online banking offering in 1997. At the time, Google didn't exist. Digital isn't something that's new. We've been doing digital for over 20 years. For me, it's a transformation role. So that's where I see it going. It'll be much more around end-to-end transformation because digital was often associated with the kind of the mobile apps and online banking and, you know, kind of things like tap and go transactions, contactless and stuff like that. That's less and less the issue nowadays. 
It's more a last mile transformation, if I was really honest. Right now, we've about 72% of our customers use what we call our digital channels. If I look across Europe, that's about 57%. Probably a reflection of the fact that Ireland is penetration of smartphones and stuff like that is actually higher than across a lot of Europe. What I see is that digital will become much more pervasive across all age groups and all spectrum. Our strongest growing digital adoption at the moment is in the 55 plus bracket. That's where it's grown strongly. So I see digital growing in two areas, that older age group, but I also see it growing into what I'd call is the non-traditional account holder. So a lot of digital investment has been in the people who are your account holders already. So they're accessing their cards, their accounts, their mortgage, their current account. Whereas actually a lot of where we have to go with digital is the people who are kind of on the edges, someone who might be a business owner or the financial controller in a a small business who needs to, you know, apply for credit or, you know, something like say a vulnerable adult who has say kind of dementia or something like that and their kids need to access their accounts on their behalf. That's where we need to drive digital. So I, I think digital has a huge role to play in inclusion and inclusion in banking and financial services. So In a lot of ways, that's where I see my role going is actually the high volume stuff is done. It's actually transformation. It's end to end transformation. It's really bringing automation and transformation across all the spectrum of the customers use the service. If I was to look longer term down the line, the financial services sector is probably in some ways it's often seen as a bit of a laggard. It's quite untrue. The financial services sector has been driving a lot of the investment in digital for a long, long number of years. How do you think AI is going to influence your space? I think AI has a huge role to play. Probably what we've seen a lot in the last couple of years, particularly with COVID. COVID drove a big shift away from cash to cards, to online spend, to e-commerce. We've seen a huge shift to the fraudsters, to smishing, vishing. I think AI has a huge role to play, for example, in that domain where the fraudsters would have an IP address from some country that we kind of went, we've never seen Sean Cheatham access his online banking from Uzbekistan. That doesn't look right. Let's just block that. And they were quite simple, but the fraudsters nowadays are far more sophisticated. So I think AI is a huge role to play, looking at a number of factors. It's the behavioral factors. It's when you use our services, how you use our services, you know, your device fingerprint how you keyed in those transactions. Because actually what the fraudsters are now very good at doing is actually getting you, they'll purport to be from the bank and they'll get you to do the transaction from your device on your IP. So they all look cool, but actually the transaction is out of whack in terms of where it's going or where it's sending the money. So AI, I think is a huge role, synthesizing a lot of diverse factors, bringing them together and actually modeling behaviors to say, this doesn't look right. This does look right. You know, that's probably just one example, but I do think we'll use it more and more. We've already started to use it in some of those domains. Certainly you've done a lot with your career. What are your long-term aims? (laughs) Yeah, I I think for us, like AIB is, it's a challenging time in the financial services industry. Markets changing, customer expectations are rising. A lot of fintech threat pressure coming in. Financial services is probably something that's seen as kind of a dull and an interesting thing. It's a little bit like the plumbing. You know, if it doesn't work, you find out about it pretty fast. I would love to see myself when I move away that our financial and our digital platforms are at a level where they really are kind of fit for purpose. We're not quite there in terms of some spaces. We've got some good offerings. We've got some gaps in our offerings. I think what's been done for business customers in the online and mobile space 
falls behind what's been done for the personal customers for a variety of reasons. So for me, I want to try and get our offerings into a shape where I'm kind of very proud of them. I think they're fit for purpose, if I was to be honest. We have a bit of a way to go on that. Finally, what would you say to anyone who hasn't considered a career path in technology? I I would say for me, tech has been a fantastic career because tech nowadays pervades all the industries and all the sectors. It's also a great foundation. So even if you don't stay in tech, it's a core skill that you will learn. It's probably like if you understand engineering and how buildings are made, you're probably going to be a better architect or a better designer or a better, you know, you'll just think about how you deliver things in a better way. So I would just say, number one, the technology is always changing. It's very interesting. You know, there's so many aspects of it from the customer side to the deep tech aspects of it. It's a massive industry nowadays. So I would say to people, give it a spin. I've been involved in it for over 30 years. I've never been idle. Thank God. Been through a number of recessions, never been short of work. And it's given me a huge opportunity to work all around the world and work with some really interesting people to live in India in our kind of build development centers over there and work with that to work with a range of partners nowadays from all around the world. So I can only say good things about it. It's been hugely kind of open and flexible and adaptive. That was Sean Jevons, the Chief Digital Officer at AIB. The one thing that stuck with me listening to Sean in the interview was how in every answer, he always came back to not the technology or not the people who made it. It's about the customer as ultimately they're the ones who will make it a success. I really liked how he mentioned about getting feedback and Whatever way you can, looking through the app store at reviews is a neat little idea that I certainly would recommend to others. I love this passion for the fintech space, and I agree with him that it's an incredibly exciting space with enormous potential moving forward. Join us for our next episode, where we'll be speaking to Angie Zhu, who is the general manager of AI and IoT Insider Labs at Microsoft. I found women actually have their own advantages in this tech world, you know, such as communication skills and empathy. And that's really important in tech. I'm Sean Cheatham, the Chief Commercial Officer at Hayes Technology, and you've been listening to How Did You Get That Job? To find out more about Hayes Technology, visit our website at HayesTechnology.com. And to never miss an episode of this podcast, make sure you hit follow wherever you get your podcasts.